So we'll get started then. We're, of course, in Second Chronicles. It's our ambition to cover one of the kings of Judah in every session. Having said that, recent events and the prompting of the Spirit as we prayed through the tabernacle today led us to cover Jehoshaphat in two sessions. There'll be a session A and a session B. Tonight we'll be covering chapter 17, 18, and 19, which seem particularly important to the congregation and the leadership alike in this room. So in our next session, next Monday, we'll finish Jehoshaphat's life where he repeats cycles of great victory and unsightly compromises. Our greatest hope tonight is that the Spirit will give each of you insight into how these specific cycles apply to your lives in the last few days, the last few weeks, and the last few months. It's going to be an encouraging evening. I can feel you bracing right now. But it's also going to be an instructive evening. So I'm going to begin in prayer, then we'll read the chapters. Father, we ask that you would breathe insight into us that you would give the kind of revelation that only you can give into the hearts of each one of your sons and daughters in this room. We thank you for this congregation. We thank you for the mission you've given us in the world. We thank you for the personally life-transforming power each of us have tasted of. We thank you, Lord, for the families that you've placed us in. Lord, it's our desire to honor those things this evening. And we ask that you would breathe upon us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. So we're going to have Miss Jennifer read through chapter 17, 18, and 19. That way there'll be no surprises. You'll know everything that's coming. You'll hear perfect Hebrew diction and enunciation. Then we will pray again and then expound on the text. Jehoshaphat, his son, succeeded him as king and strengthened himself against Israel. He stationed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah and put garrisons in Judah and in the towns of Ephraim that his father Asa had captured. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because in his early years he walked in the ways his father David had followed. He did not consult the Baals but sought the God of his father and followed his commands rather than the practices of Israel. The Lord established the kingdom under his control, and all Judah brought gifts to Jehoshaphat so that he had great wealth and honor. His heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. Furthermore, he removed the high places and the Asherah poles from Judah. In the third year of his reign, he sent his officials, Ben-Hal, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nathaniel, and Micaiah to teach in the towns of Judah. With them were certain Levites, Shemaiah, Nathaniel, Nathaniah, sorry, Zebediah, Asahel, Sheremah, Jadonathan, Ajanai, Tobijah, and Tob Adonijah, and the priests, Elishama and Jerome. They taught throughout Judah, talking with them the book of the law of the Lord. They went around to all the towns of Judah and taught the people. The fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms of the land surrounding Judah, so they did not make war with
with Jehoshaphat. Some Philistines brought Jehoshaphat gifts of silver as tribute, and Arabs brought him flocks, 7,700 7, rams and 7,700 goats. Jehoshaphat became more and more powerful. He built forts and stone cities in Judah, and he had large supplies in the towns of Judah. He also kept experienced fighting men in Jerusalem. Their enrollment by families was as follows. From Judah, commanders of units of 1,000. Adnah, the commander with 300,000 fighting men. Next, Jehonanon, the commander with 280,000. Next, Amasaiah, son of Zechari, who volunteered himself for the service of the Lord with 200,000. From Benjamin, Eliada, a valiant soldier with 200,000 men armed with bows and shields. Next, Jehoshaphat, with 180,000 men armed for battle. These were the men who served the king, besides those he stationed in the fortified cities throughout Judah. Now, Jehoshaphat had great wealth and honor, and he allied himself with Ahab by marriage. For some years, he went down to visit Ahab in Samaria. Ahab slaughtered many sheep and cattle for him and the people with him and, and urged him to attack Ramoth Gilead. Ahab, king of Israel, asked Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Will you go with me against Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied, I am as you are and my people as your people. We will join you in the war. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, First seek the counsel of the Lord. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, 400 men, and asked them, Shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for God will give it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? But Jehoshaphat asked, I'm sorry, the king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord. But I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me. Wonder but why. Also, but always bad. He is Micaiah's son of Imla. The king should not say that, Jehoshaphat replied. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imla, at once. Dressed in the royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance to the gate of Samaria. With all the prophets prophesying before them, now Zedekiah, son of Canaan, had made iron horns, and he, he declared, This is what the Lord said, With these you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. All the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth Gilead, and be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, Look as one... Man, the other prophets are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what my God says. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Attack and be victorious, he answered, for they will be given into the, your hand. The king said to him, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? 
Then Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you that he never prophesied anything good about me, but only bad? Micaiah continued, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with the host of heaven standing on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab, king of Israel, into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forth, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked, I will go and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all the prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, son of Kenan, went up and slapped Micaiah in the face. Which way did the spirit come from? The, the Lord go when he went from me to speak to you, he asked. Micaiah replied, if you will find out on the day, you will go and hide in an inner room. The king of Israel then ordered, take Micaiah and send him back to Ammon, the ruler of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, this is what the king says. Put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah declared, if you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Then he added, mark my words, all of you people. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Aram had ordered these chariot commanders. Do not fight with anyone small or great except the king of Israel. When the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they thought, this is the king of Israel. So they, they turned to attack him. But Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord helped him. God drew them away from him. For when the chariot commanders saw that he was not the king of Israel, they stopped pursuing him. But someone drew his bow at, a random, at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. The king told the chariot driver, wheel around and get me out of the fighting. I've been wounded. All day long the battle raged, and the king of Israel propped himself up in his chariot facing the Arameans until evening. Then at sunset he died. When Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, returned safely to his palace in Jerusalem, Jehu the seer, son of Hanani, went out to meet him and said to him, that said to the king, should you help the wicked and love those who who hate the Lord. Because of this, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. There is, however, some good in you, for you have rid the land of the Asherah poles and have set your heart on seeking God. Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people from Sheba <coughs> to the hills country of Ephraim and turned them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. He appointed judges in the land in each of the fortified cities of Judah. He told them, Consider carefully what you do, because you are not judging for man, but for the Lord, who is with you whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully for what the Lord our God is. God, there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. In Jerusalem also, Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levite priests and heads of Israelite families to administer the law of the Lord 
and to settle disputes. And they lived in Jerusalem. He gave them th these orders. You must serve faithfully and wholeheartedly in the, in the fear of the Lord. In every case that comes before you, your fellow countrymen who live in the cities, whether bloodshed or other concerns of the law, commands, decrees, or ordinances, you are to warn them not to sin against the Lord. Otherwise, his wrath will come on you and your brothers. Do this and you will not sin. Aramiah, the chief priest, will be over you in any matter concerning the Lord. And Zebediah, son of Ishmael, the leader of the tribe of Judah, will be over you in any matter concerning the king. And the Levites will serve as officials before you. Act with courage, and may the Lord be with those who do well. You can appreciate we have a lot to cover tonight, huh? Yeah. What a den of lying liars and crap weasels that Ahab's kingdom is, huh? Keep these straight. We're going to pray here in just a second and set a framework for you. But Ahab's the king of the north. He's a pig. And Jehoshaphat, the king of the south. And uh, Ezra presents him in a heroic fashion. And we want to be faithful to that. As, uh, as I begin to pray... We're not going to get into the intricacies of a lying spirit, although we will talk about it. I've taught on it many times. Uh, I think most of you are somewhat familiar with our celestial powers teaching and what is happening there. But I do want to read to you Psalm 18. This begins in verse 25. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. That's all pretty good stuff, huh? Oh, yeah. To the crooked, you so show yourself shrewd. Uh, you get what you ask for from the Lord in greater abundance than you ever asked for it. If you're intent to eat quail, then it'll come out your nose. If what you want is righteousness, then it'll come right out of your life. I want to pray and set a spiritual stage that we're going to cover here. And I think you'll pick up on it pretty quickly. Y'all pray with me. Lord, may we learn to be with you in all things. For your word to us has been, when we are with you, you are with us. Lord, we ask that you help us repent and recognize deadly compromise. That way you may bless us with the victories that you have prepared for us in advance. Lead us, Lord, away from temptation and into the righteous steps that you have prepared for us. We thank you, mighty God, and we commit this evening to you. Now that we've read the chapters, it's time to expound on them. As we do, we're going to sum them up in the very beginning. In other words, we're going to give you our flight path. We're going to tell you what it is we're about to do. Here's our spiritual overview. So as we begin our overview, we're going to start in Matthew 11, verse 7. Read along on the screen with me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? This is a passage that many think that they understand, while they have no idea what the context of it is. It's a beautiful passage in and of itself, and we want to enlighten you to some of the background that Jesus and John are referring to here. This is an excerpt from Ron Mosley's book, Yeshua. Put that on the screen and I'll read it to you. There was a well-known parable during first century Judaism known as the reed and the oak tree. Without an understanding of this parable, it is difficult for us to grasp the imagery behind this passage. 
According to the parable, a giant oak tree and a thin reed were both planted by the river. Whenever a storm came, the deep roots of the oak tree kept it firmly established, enabling it to withstand most winds. It could, however, be blown over by wind of sufficient strength. There was nothing wishy-washy or compromising about the oak tree. The reed, on the other hand, would bend to the right or the left, even with a slight breeze. The conclusion of the story was that the oak, because of its refusal to compromise, could end up losing its life in the storm. But the reed, though it might survive, could only do so by continually bending. Come on. Jesus was clearly pointing to this familiar Jewish story when he asked, did you expect John to be a reed blowing in the wind? In other words, did you expect the prophet of God to be a weak-kneed compromiser? Jews who heard this immediately understood what Jesus was saying and asked no questions. This is directly out of his book without commentary on our end, Adam. I want to say this evening, though, how I wish it was so clearly defined as oaks and reeds. The truth is that every believer, that every one of us, that I find myself in both positions from time to time, standing like an oak tree on God-given convictions, boldly proclaiming it, and also swaying like a reed in other areas that convictions have not been solidified in my own life. There are areas that we have ignored reed-like behavior, and our goal this evening is to learn how to be the oak tree. In chapter 17 tonight, we're going to see Jehoshaphat standing like an oak of righteousness. In chapter 18, we will see Jehoshaphat swaying like a reed in the wind. But praise God, in chapter 19, we're going to see him return to standing like an oak tree. Amen. Each of these chapters are going to have a tenor that we will derive something from. We have a few passages to hand out, and then uh, our brothers will comment on them some. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, Paul Rosales. Isaiah 61, 3 through 4, Nick Rosales. We'll take just those two. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A bruised what? Reed. A bruised reed. Keep going. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. Now clearly Isaiah 42 is about Yeshua. We can see that. Jesus is the only true oak of righteousness. He is the only one that has stood firm, not swaying, not bending to any amount of pressure. He's the only one that has ever lived that is a true oak of righteousness. And this passage says about him that it is not his desire to snuff out a reed. It's not his desire to bruise a broken reed. He will not falter or be discouraged, but he will strengthen you and eliminate the swaying areas of your life. Tonight as we read about Jehoshaphat, how he was an oak in some areas and a reed in some other areas, you'll be able to connect the areas in your life that you've been like a reed. When you do that, remember this passage because it's not Jesus' intention to show you as a reed and then break you and cast you off. 
It's his desire to strengthen you in those areas so you can be more oak-like. What's he want you to be? Oak-like. This was the Apostle Paul's prayer for the Galatian church when he saw them swaying. He said, oh, I am in pains of childbirth for you until Christ is fully formed in you. Now, we can all quote that verse, but if you're put to the test and you have to see how much Christ is actually in you, how much oak-like behavior is actually in you, it's a sobering thing. Let's look at Isaiah 61, 3 through 4. And provide for those who grieve and die, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. Then they will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Come on. He doesn't want you in ashes. He wants to give you gladness. He doesn't want you mourning. He wants to give you a garment of praise. He doesn't want you in despair. He wants you to be an oak of righteousness. But mourning comes before those things. Because it's necessary that you identify in your own life. It shouldn't be somebody else pounding it into you. It should be your daily desire to figure out where you've been in a sea of reeds. Because the people of God are called to cross the sea of reeds and arrive as oaks of righteousness on the other side. This passage clearly says you will be called oaks of righteousness. So what does that mean for you, Elsia? You will be called Oaks of Righteousness. It goes on to describe rebuilding cities, places long devastated, ruined cities. That's because you are called to help others become Oaks of Righteousness. You will never do in another human being what has not been done in you. That's the problem with the church world. It's not always that they're preaching the wrong things. They don't live them at all. And so they can't create that in someone else. If you want authentic results, you have to be the authentic thing. The aim of our study tonight is to follow the path of Jehoshaphat's life through three chapters and identify where he is an oak and where he has to cross a sea of reeds and stop his reed-like behavior so that he can arrive at what God has called him to be. Is that what you want to do? Yes. We are supposed to be a forest of oaks of righteousness in this room. That will never occur unless we have the courage, personally, not somebody else doing it for you, personally, to look in the mirror of God's word and go, where am I swaying around like a reed? It's not what Christ would do. It's what I did do, and it must be repented from. I'm convinced that the last few months, weeks, and days have had a lot of reed-like behavior that nobody should have to point out for you. The Holy Ghost will point it out in you so that you can become what He is compelling you to be. We're going to begin in chapter 17 and verse 1. Brother Lentonius, will you help us out and read from 1 to verse 5? his son succeeded as king and strengthened himself against Israel. He stationed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah and put garrisons in Judah and in the towns of Ephraim that his father Asaph captured. Come on. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because in his early years he walked in the ways of his father 
waited his father David and followed. He did not consult with the Baals, but sought the God of his father and followed his commands rather than the practices of Israel. The Lord established the kingdom under his rule, and all Judah brought gifts to Jehoshaphat, so that he had great wealth and honor. So, as we get going, there's a few things we want to begin to pick up. Do you notice that Jehoshaphat is strengthening himself against the northern kingdom? The seed of idolatry. We spent all of our time talking about golden calves and looking at maps. He's strengthening himself against the Samaritan kingdom. A part that I love is he stations troops in areas to hold the ground that was given to him by his father Asa. Not only does he start out by strengthening his current position, he also strengthens towns that have been captured by previous generations and he has no intention of giving up in his own. That's a good word for LCM in and of itself. We've been handed great things that we must station troops in. Ezra goes on to comment on why Jehoshaphat was able to do this and start off as such an oak of righteousness. We're going to put a slide on the screen for you that has the Masoretic text, and Justin's going to tell us about it. All right, so the Masoretic, did you notice that in the NIV, it says, in his early years, he walked in the ways of his father? Well, the Masoretic says something like this, and the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he went in the first ways of David his father and did not inquire of the Baalim, or the masters or the Baals. Now, what does it mean when he says the first ways of his father David? Well, when we think about David's reign, he had a remarkable start as king, didn't he? Yeah. He was the OG oak of righteousness. <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> David was the one that when Chronicles is writing, when they do good, they say it was like David. Well, Ezra's taking it further, and he's saying that Jehoshaphat did well in like the early years of David. Later in David's reign, though, he had moments of swaying like a reed. He had moments like with Bathsheba and Uriah and taking censuses and things like that. Ezra's emphasis is that Jehoshaphat's early days were like the early days of David. Other translations bring this out as well. I want to show you, Nasby says he followed the example of his father David's earlier years. ESV says in the earlier ways of his father David. And Young's literal says first ways of David, his father. He was walking with the Lord just like his father was before his father started to sway. And interestingly enough, you're going to see the same thing in Jehoshaphat that started to creep into his father. Let's pick up verse 6 and we're going to keep going. His heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. Furthermore, he removed the high places and the astropoles from Judah. That's a pretty good start, isn't it? Notice these actions were not based on fear. They weren't concerned with punishment. It didn't take a rebuke to get him to do it. There's no reproach involved at all. They're prompted by something going on in his own heart. He's actually being compelled by a love of God's ways. Not a fear of punishment. Not having to be called out. Not because somebody else is imposing them on him. Again, surveying the translations here is pretty instructive in this regard. All of them have to do with his heart and a description of Strong's number 1361, Gavah, 
which is a gimel, a vet, and a hay, and we have them on a slide for you. The NIV translations of that word in other passages are on the right. Exalts, made higher, devoted higher, you can see that. Pride, we wouldn't usually think of that as a good thing. Certainly if it's haughtiness, it wouldn't be a good thing. <laughs> Except the way that this word is being used in this sentence. Look at the Nazbi. He took great pride in the ways of the Lord. Come on. Come on, great pride in the ways of the Lord. That's a good thing. Great pride in your own ways is a path to destruction. Great pride in the ways of the Lord means you love him and that's where your highest goal is. ESV says his heart was courageous. All these are translating the same phrase about his leave, gava. The idea that something in his heart was happening that was compelling him. Young's literal probably gets the closest to the literal, shockingly, because it's a literal (laughs) translation. And his heart is high. Now, friends, that doesn't mean he took a weekend trip to Colorado. (laughs) His heart is high in the ways of Yehovah. The idea is that God's ways were being so exalted in his heart that it was pulling his actions and his life up to what was being done in his heart. That is one of the things that we're aiming at tonight. We could call things out. We could point to them. We could call your name, and God knows I will. Except in prayer, our aim, as God put us at a golden altar, was don't identify for them every area. Let me do that and instead exalt the ways of the Lord in their hearts, and I'll do the heavy lifting for you. I was like, wow, you mean I've been working at this too hard all of these years? And the answer is yes. When the Lord shows you something, it's worth ten times a preacher showing it to you. Oh, come on now. But I'm still going to do my job. The point here is that the ways of the Lord were exalted above all other things in his heart. This results in pride in what God is doing. Courageous actions to show support for the Lord. These things are the result of lifting the Lord's ways to the highest point in your heart not your verbiage. This is the pathway to becoming an oak of righteousness. It's why an oak doesn't bend whether anybody's looking or not. It is authentically an oak tree, and so it authentically acts like an oak tree. Reeds talk like oak trees, but live like reeds. It's not so much that you're trying to stop being scared or trying to not compromise. This is simply loving God's ways so much that you don't want to do those things, and so you don't. It has to do with what is being exalted inside of you. I'd like to hand out a couple passages. Is that okay? Yes. Yes. All right. Rick, why don't you take 2 Corinthians 5, 14, and 15, and... uh, Back there. Assad, why don't you take Colossians 3, 1 through 4? Steve Thomas, why don't you take 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17? And uh, JJ, why don't you take Jeremiah 17, 7 through 10? We're going to comment on these as we go, and you'll see them on the screen. Amen. Read 2 Corinthians 5 when you have it. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. 
and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. <coughs> Look, there are various things in this that are beautiful. The idea that we die and no longer live in ourselves, but in him who has raised us is exceptional. Rick, are you reading out of a NASB? Why, yes, I am. NASB says, <laughs> for Christ's love controls us. My translation says compels. I think both are a good depiction of what we're aiming at yeah. here. We're not speaking about a fear of punishment that drives to an action. Saints, that's our Moses teaching with children. Yeah. What we're talking about is a love that controls your very actions. Amen. That causes your heart to want to be elevated. That wants you to go higher in Christ. Amen. That causes you to take a pride in the standards that he has. Yeah. In his Amen. law, in his calling. Amen. Our aim tonight is that we would love the ways of the Lord in his pathway. That this would be distinctly different than a fear of punishment. In fact, that we would move from read-like behavior where everything that looks like it might harm us is causing us to move to one side or the other and are standing firm as oaks of righteousness because we love the Lord and love his ways. If you are motivated by being called out, if you are motivated by being corrected, if you're motivated by the consequence of what happens if you get caught, then what happens when nobody sees what you're doing? What happens when you're in a position and there is not a person who is above you to correct you? See, these kind of behaviors, they multiply a sea of reeds. They don't create oaks of righteousness. We're aimed at your internal motivation. What happens when nobody is around tonight? What's Colossians 3, 1 through 4? Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Set your what? Hearts. hearts. Not your minds? No. No. Why no. no. do you do that too? <laughs> Starts with the heart. Keep going. When Christ, sorry, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Oh, come on. Set your minds on things above. Not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You know, there are thousands of messages about the Apostle Paul and what made him the Apostle Paul. There are so many messages that say, well, you know, he was just a passionate man. He was a zealous man. He was this short, bald, uh, going blind and just cared about the Lord and didn't care about suffering. No, what made Paul is that he did this in his own life. He set his heart on above where Christ is. The number one thing in Paul's heart was to please Christ. He said it in Philippians. I want to know him. Then in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears. Man, when he's your life, he's everything to you. When he is your life, you don't have to struggle with commitment. He is everything to you. You married folks in the room, you remember that you remember when you first got married and your wife asked you to stop at the grocery store and get something? It wasn't uh, a challenge or it wasn't interrupting what you had to do. You enjoyed doing it because you loved your wife. You, it wasn't an obligation to you. You loved it because you loved her. An oak of righteousness is an oak because he loves being like Christ. He's not afraid of being... Disciplined. He's not afraid of, of being called out. He's not afraid of what anyone else will think. 
He is simply in love and with Christ and in love with being like Christ. Fear, rebuke, punishment are not a part of the equation. Amen. Remember the passage that says perfect love cast out all fear because fear has to do with punishment. punishment. There's no fear of punishment in love. The oak would rather die than sway from what he loves. Man, that oak wants to be rooted, right? Yeah, yeah. That oak needs nourishment, right? He's not going to sway because he loves it. That is the motivating factor in an oak. No, I wasn't going to do it, but he brought up husbands and wives. So let's just, let's go there. If your wife's behavior is only based on making you happy, then what happens when you die, husband? Well, your wife will fall away. What happens if you're out of town for a month? Let's take it to children. Why do so many children live in an obedient fashion until they don't have to? Because they were only living in an obedient fashion because you made them. Somewhere in all of this, we have to exalt the ways of the Lord in a way that people fall in love with it. And it is their desire to do it no matter who is around. This congregation has got to grow up. And it has to do it from the top down. Otherwise, the leadership is a police force. And we are not called to be a police force. We're called to cultivate the love of the Lord. Look at how this is put in 1 Peter, because this has nothing to do with the fear of God punishing you. See, if an oak snaps under the pressure of wind, he's not ashamed of that. He's proud that he got the chance to stand until he broke. But a reed will save its own life by swaying in any direction. This kind of conviction only comes from a real and sincere love of the Lord that is excited for the chance to be broken by a trial because the only way you would ever back away from it is if it cost your life. And you don't back away even to death. That's what we want to cultivate. Let's keep going. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Where do you set it apart? In your hearts. Not in your house, not in your workplace, not in the rules dictated to you. See, when it's set apart in your own heart, then it doesn't matter who's around. I I can tell you if all of you fall away, it will not affect my love for the Lord even a little bit. If anything, it'll make it more precious to me. I do not do the things that I do for you. I do them because I deeply love the Lord. He who sins much and is forgiven much loves much. Well, I love the Lord more than you. And I do probably because he saved me from more than you. But we're going to move away from rules-based logic here and move towards loving the Lord like an oak. That's the only way you ever succeed. Keep going. You know, that was spoken like an oak. 
Only an oak tree would say it is better to suffer for doing good than for evil. All a reed wants to do is make sure that they're not corrected. Make sure that they're not in trouble. Make sure that nobody saw what they did. The first thing a reed does when it sways is look to see who saw. An oak tree is excited. Like, did you see what I did there? I broke my own back for the love of Christ. That is what we're aiming at. Whether we're dealing with our family at weddings, believers in social settings, or obvious Samaritan sin. Our innermost beings need to be fully set on loving what God loves. He watches that. He sees that. This is how you stay free from idolatry. More than that, it's how you begin to remove it in others. You have to be internally motivated no matter who is looking. So as we read Jeremiah 17, I'm going to interrupt you a bunch. And it's going to help us learn to cultivate what we are preaching about. Pick up in verse 7. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. All right, let's pause right here. Blessed is the man whose trust is in the Lord. Not the man who fears failure and guises it as I just want to get it right. The man who trusts him, who has a loving relationship and a devotion. God says you are blessed when you depend upon him in this manner. Get verse 8. He will be like a tree planted by the water, sends out its roots by the streams. does not fear when he comes. His leaves are always green. It has no worries in the year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. We're just going to go ahead and, like some preachers do, quote a uh, mythical Jewish saying that uh, this tree was an oak. This tree has roots that go down because it is invested in what it has been placed to do. Come on, an oak in your life to be one is a tree that is not surface level, that is not spreading wide as far as possible. You're driving roots down into the ground exactly where God has told you to because you trust Him and you love the work that He has given you. It goes on to say, it does not fear when heat comes. (laughs) Saints, trees don't fear anything. We're personifying your life and the prophets. The man who has that kind of love with the Lord, that kind of closeness with the rivers of His presence, intimacy with Him, does not fear when heat comes. Let me hop in on that. If you're struggling with fear of what your relatives think, if you're struggling with fears of what discontented believers think, if you're struggling with fears about how to deal with the Samaritan world, according to Jeremiah 17, you need to deepen your roots. Somebody else doesn't deepen them for you. You deepen your roots. That is how we deal with fear, because if you get them right, you will not fear. You'll be compelled by the love of the Lord and not at all controlled by the fear of what you might lose or the greed of what you might gain. It will simply be a matter of loving the Lord. It says when heat comes, its leaves are always green. It has no worries during a year of drought and it never fails to bear fruit. Saints. The Lord is able to do something that none of us can illuminate for you. You may think that you're an oak and that your roots are deep, but when adversity comes upon you, we find out whether or not that is a true statement. You learn to really assess whether or not you're fearful. Or perhaps, like a few of you, your inhibitions were slightly alleviated this weekend. And all of a sudden, 
The inmost desire of your heart is pouring out of your mouth in your actions. Saints, we have an opportunity to recognize the area that we've been a reed that is close to the river of God, but we have not actually tapped into its source. We haven't gone deep enough to be supernaturally supplied. It bears fruit, and it never fails to do so. Reeds will bear fruit at different points in time, but this tree is one that never fails to bear fruit. Do you want perpetual fruit, saints? Then our roots must grow deep. Hey, was that statement about inhibitions a little too veiled for you? If you think that alcohol is a problem in this church, you misunderstand. We could restrict it all day long. All it does is reveal what the inward motivations of your heart are. And if you cannot wait to be a lustful little devil, then all alcohol will do is show that. The rest of the time you were just pretending, wearing an oak facade. We need to deal with the issues of our heart. More restrictions won't fix that. The only thing that will fix it is getting rooted in a love of the Lord. Being punished won't fix it. I'm not saying that we won't do it. I'm saying that it won't fix it. The worst part about the restrictions and the punishment is it causes those that don't have that heart disposition to be punished along with you. I'm not willing to do that. So we're going to grow up. J.J., I think you have an answer to that statement in verse 9 for us. Oh, my intentions were pure. I just got a little caught up. Sure. My emotions were high. I ain't meant well. I ain't, that's not what I intended. Liar. You're lying to us and to yourself. Your heart, my heart, is deceitful. Let's just say that together. My heart, my heart is deceitful. Is deceitful. Would you like to have more fun than that? Yeah. Look at your neighbor and say, your heart is deceitful. <laughs> your heart is deceitful. Your heart is deceitful. Your heart is deceitful. Your heart. <laughs> so as oaks of righteousness tonight, as the men of God whose roots are growing deep, we're going to go ahead and say your feelings, your intentions, they're entirely worthless, and we're going to throw those things totally out so that we can drill down into the river of God. JJ, get verse 10 for us. It's almost as if, no matter what your heart says to you, God will prove the man to be an oak or a reed, and he will reward us accordingly. So we're saying examine the fruit. Have you been swaying in the wind? Has your right posture been mostly because you're fearing the punishment of the people around you? Or have you found the ability to stand on godly convictions? This chapter is going to display Jehoshaphat as an oak of righteousness who knows how to stand. As we continue, we're going to examine ourselves as we see the standard that he lays down. The Lord desires for us to be oaks of righteousness. Not reeds with our own moral compass or our heart's direction, swaying in every situation based upon what we feel. Being sweet is not a moral compass. Your heart being hurt is not a moral compass. Doing what the crowd thinks a Christian ought to do or what would be respectable or expected during a certain circumstance or ceremony is not a moral compass. We determine our moral compass based upon God's emotions, God's feelings, and the standards of his word. 
We must remove the areas of reed-like behavior that skew his right standard in our life. Amen. The word alone is the moral compass. Yes. And even that requires the enlightenment and the breath of God's spirit yes. to rightly yes. understand it. Yes. But we have a God who will fill us with a spirit of understanding. Hey, Brother Linton, verse 7. In the third year of his reign, he sent officials, Ben-Hel, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nethanel, Micaiah, to teach in the towns of Judah. With them were certain Levites, Shimeiah, Nethaniah, Zebediah, Asahel, Sheremoth, <laughs> Jehonathan, Adonijah, Tobijah, and Tob Adonijah, and the priest Elishama and Jehoram. They taught throughout Judah, taking with them the book of the law of the Lord. They went around all the towns of Judah and taught the people. Man, you know, this is quite an extraordinary teaching team. Yeah. <laughs> and their entire emphasis is on the book of the law of the Lord. You know, this is the first time we can see in the Tanakh that man actually went out and taught the law of the Lord. I want to show you on a slide. These are the officials, Levites, and priests. Look how many there were. Talk about sending them out two by two. <laughs> Jehoshaphat sent all these men out, and their number one goal was to teach the Torah. Let me show you another slide and show you what their names mean. Now, Ben Hiel, son of Ben Hiel, is son of Scrain, Obadiah, servant of Jehovah, Yahweh, Zechariah, Yahweh remembers, Nethanel, God gives, Micaiah, who is like Yahweh, the Levites, Yeshemiah, that hears or obeys the Lord, Nethaniah, Yahweh bestows, Zebediah, Portion of the Lord, or the Lord is my portion. Asahel, made by God. Shemiramah, name most high, or name of heights. Yehonathan, gift of the Lord. Adonijah, my Lord is Yahweh. Tobijah, goodness of the Lord. And Tob, Adonijah, good as the Lord, Yahweh. Then you have our priests. Elishema, God of hearing. And Jehoram, exaltation of the Lord. What would it be like to assemble a team whose functions sounded like those names. How do you do something like that? Well, I'm going to give you a hint. It starts by being an oak of righteousness. You draw to yourself whatever you are. I mean, that, that is just a reality. And the truth is, is Jehoshaphat, whose name means my God is the judge, he drew these kind of people to himself. The higher they lifted the book of the law of the Lord, the more of them came. And they began to change everything around them. Wow. This ought to tell you something about yourself when you see who you're drawn to and who you're most comfortable with. We're going to come back to this slide. I promise it's going to be a feature of the things that we do tonight. But we have to put a few more pieces together first. Is that okay? Yeah. Let's do verse 10. The fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms of the land surrounding Judah, so, so that they did not make war with Jehoshaphat. Let's give you a few scriptures on that note. So, Cho, you're going to take Deuteronomy 2, 25. Marlon, you're going to get Joshua 2, 24. And Nolan, you're going to take Psalm 105, verse 38. So we did a law of prophets and writings. Deuteronomy 2, 25. This very day I will begin to put the terror and fear of you on all the nations under heaven. They will hear reports of you and will tremble and be in anguish because of you. 
Look, when Moses lifted the law of the Lord high, when in his own heart and in the hearts of the people, the ways of the Lord were exalted, something happened to the nations around them. They melted with fear. You are dangerous to the enemy when the Lord is your sole motivation. You are an oak tree, not easily broken in something that can benefit everybody around when you're in this position. When you sway, that's not the case, but that's not our subject. What's Joshua 2.24? They said to Joshua, the Lord will surely give you the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Melting in fear. Verse 10 that we just read said, The fear of the Lord fell on the kingdoms. The reason we're reading Deuteronomy and Joshua is that something supernatural was beginning to happen in the nations around Israel when they exalted the word of God that did not serve the Lord. Saints, something was happening inside of them. They were being compelled by a love of God that was radiating outward so brightly that those who were outside of Israel could look in and see something that was worthy of fear, that was worthy of reverence that their own bitterness and resolve was beginning to melt. This is much analogous to the man that is on fire for Christ and people ask him, why do you have that hope? Saints, what we want to cultivate is the oak-like status that Jehoshaphat displays here. It has an effect on him, his household, the whole people, then the nations that are surrounding. Who has Psalm 105? Egypt was glad when they left. Man, say that again. Look, these are not just idle words. They are your life. The law actually has an effect on your life. It gives life. It produces life. One thing it does, when the law of the Lord is held in high exaltation within your heart, when the word of God is the number one thing in your heart, like an oak, you are attached to the word of God and you're not moving, you're not bending off of it, you say, this is what the word says, and I will not come off of that, then the fear of God will fall on the enemies of God. Wow. Come on, do you have any enemies? Yes. I'll say that again. I know you've got some enemies. Do you have any enemies? Yes. Look, when you treasure the word of God, then you know what happens just like Deuteronomy 4 says. What kind of nation has a God like this oh, yeah. that when they pray, yeah. he hears them? When the, when the law is exalted in your heart, God will act on your behalf and he will strike fear within your enemies. Your job like an oak is to properly reverence the Lord through his word. He will do all of the heavy lifting. You don't have to attack every single little dog that's barking. Your job is to stay rooted and cherish the word above all things. Let's consider two possibilities that were just given to us. Okay. One of them was working from her back and nobody preached the gospel to her. And yet because of their love and reverence for the Lord, she got born again and grafted into the lineage of Christ. Another one, the Egyptians who are oppressors, they were so glad to see the people of God go because they were terrified. If you exalt the principles of the Lord, his word in your own heart, You won't have to worry about how to relate to every person you meet. All you'll have to worry about is how you relate to the Lord. Man, that's a good word. It's such a problem. 
to try to adapt to every situation. You're not supposed to. Oaks don't do that. Reeds do that. We don't have a different gospel for every nation. We don't have a different gospel for every people group. You should not have a different behavior for your family, your friends, and the backslidden. When you are rooted in the Lord, when you're an oak, He will do the heavy lifting. As long as you're moving about, all you're doing is muddying the waters for everyone. They don't know what is the Lord because, well, that's not what we're talking about tonight. Let's go to verse 11. Look, there's a lot to get to tonight. But suffice it to say, Palestinians and Arabs brought gifts. This is the result of cultivating oaks of righteousness. Yes, The gospel works effectively through those that have been affected thoroughly by the gospel. Uh, If you understood what I just said, you would applaud for that. The gospel works effectively only through those that have been thoroughly affected themselves by the gospel. If you're a rule keeper, if you're trying to make your husband happy, your church family happy, if what your motivation is, is I just don't want to get in trouble, you won't affect anybody for the gospel. If the gospel has gotten hold of you to the extent that your internal motivator is to be pleasing to him however you have to stand, no matter what the cost, no matter what it means to everybody else, you'll be entirely affected. That is when an authentic thing produces authentic results. It's not because of your technique. It's because of who you are. It's because of what God has done in you. There's so much I'd like to say about that. But instead... I'm going to quote a single verse, and from that verse you can infer what the entire Bible speaks about this subject. I'm not going to quote it. We're going to have Paul read it. It would be Isaiah 49, 22 through 23. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I will beckon to the Gentiles. I will lift up my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their shoulders. Kings will be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. They will bow down before you with their faces to the ground. They will lick the dust at your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. Is this prophecy because the Jews in this prophecy are going and begging people to be nice to them? Is it because they're working very hard to show that they're inclusive? No, not at all. Is it because the Jews have a deep fear that they won't be liked by these people? Not at all. They are made into oaks of righteousness, and because of where they personally stand with the Lord, others flock to them. You don't even need to send an invitation. They just want to be what you are. Amen. As we start to read verse 12 and 13, it's worth noting that this prophecy is something that will come to pass. And it's entirely up to us to what degree we participate in it. And we fully intend on raising up oaks of righteousness in the one association yes. that will help see this come to pass. Brother Linton, 12 and 13 for me. Jehoshaphat became more and more powerful. Yeah, he did. And stored cities in Judah and had large supplies in the towns of Judah. 
He also kept experienced fighting men in Jerusalem. Mm. Look, this is the work product of a certain kind of life, a life that is an oak of righteousness. When the book of the law is rightly exalted in one's heart, this is the work product. When the king has appointed teams of teachers of the law to ensure that it's carried out and it's understood, this is the work product. When men transformed, committed, and are teaching the law, go out to do their work. This is the result. It's a certain kind of effect. Now you see he built forts. He had large amounts of supplies. And the NIV says he also had experienced fighting men in Jerusalem. That's not exactly what the Hebrew says. We want to show you a slide and lend a little better understanding from it. You can see here on the slide at the top of the screen, it says experienced fighting men. But there's more than two words at play here. We have a man warrior describing these guys. Men who are masculine and are warriors. There's another descriptor. They're war warriors. I don't know what a war warrior is. But it's getting more and more intense. I think it's the opposite of a Facebook keyboard warrior. Now, these man warriors, war warriors, they were nimble like reeds. No. No. They were Gabor, mighty ones. And it's in reference to their physical stature that God had equipped them for the task that they must accomplish. They defended the kingdom and the word of God. Then we have yet another word in the same passage. Hail. It has to do with the constitution of the men that were carrying these things out. They were man warriors. They were war warriors. They were physically mighty and their convictions were valiant. Yes, they were experienced. They were experienced in winning by exalting the very word of God. Amen. That's who Jehoshaphat was surrounded by because he was an oak. Amen. That's what he drew next to it. We're going to keep rolling through the passage and let's read a little bit more about these guys. Let's do 14 through 19. Their enrollment by families was as follows. From Judah, commanders of, of units of 1,000. Adna, the commander, with 300,000 fighting men. Next, Jehonahan. The commander with 280,000. Come on. Next, Amaziah, son of Zikri, who volunteered himself for the service of the Lord. Yeah, he did. 200,000. From Benjamin, Eliab, a valiant soldier with 200,000 men, armed with bows and shields. Next, Jehoshaphat, with 180,000 men, armed for battle. A great name. Yeah. These were the men who served the king, besides those he stationed in the fortified cities throughout Judah. Now let's go back and look at these men that gathered around Jehoshaphat, and we're going to get a picture of a house that is built here. We have son of strength, servant of Yahweh. Yahweh remembers, God gives, who is like Yahweh, obeys and hears the Lord. Yahweh bestows, portion of the Lord, made by God, name most high, gift of the Lord. My Lord is Yahweh, goodness of Yahweh, good is the Lord Yahweh, God of hearing and exaltation of the Lord. Their one focus was sent out to the book to teach the book of the law of the Lord. Now, look at the next slide. We have Jehoshaphat, which means he is judge. God is judge. You have the fighting men that were man warriors, war warriors, mighty one, and men of valor. Here you see the king, the officials, the Levites, the priests, and Valiant, mighty men of war. Did you count how many there are? There's five. This is Ephesians 4 kind of stuff. A five-fold ministry. 
This is how a house like LCM was built. Yes. Men that love the Lord more than anything else exalt the love of the Lord, the highest of all things in their heart, and love the law. This is how LCM was built, and this is how it will keep growing. This is how in Jehoshaphat's time, men like that flocked to Jehoshaphat, and that is how men like that will flock to this house if we continue like oaks of righteousness. This is cultivation of the oaks of righteousness, and it only comes from loving the book of the law of the Lord more than anything else. Not preferences, not differences between us, not different stations or who works at this job or or who says what about us. Exalting the book of the law and exalting the love of the Lord is cultivating oaks of righteousness. Again, this is not fear. This is not punishment. This is not avoiding mistakes. Come on. This is exalting the Lord's ways in your heart to the point that you are compelled. Say compelled. Compelled. Compelled by the love of the Lord. And when that happens, when you are compelled by the love of the Lord, the world is repulsive to you. And you are repulsive to the world. Before I got born again, a man came out of a grocery store, found me in the parking lot and said, you know, I want you to know one thing. Jesus Christ loves you. And I hated that man for telling me that. I hated it because I could see his heart was motivated by the love of God. And I didn't love the Lord. Therefore, I, I repulsed that man. When you love the Lord more than anything else, when you stand on the love of the Lord and don't bend from it, even though pressure from family comes, even though pressure from everybody comes, there could be people in this house pressuring you to bend on those convictions inside of you. Whenever you stand, you are going to look repulsive to the weeds. They are going to distance yourself. They are going to distance themselves from you. That's why Paul said, I am crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to me. He took his stance as an oak, and he did not bend. Whether related or not, whether you were once friends or not, whether it is socially acceptable or not, those that are of the world will be repulsed by you and they will be repulsive to you. When you stand with the Lord and you love him no matter what, you cannot stand for what they stand. Remember what we taught last week. The Lord is with you only if you are with him. If you bend off of that line anywhere, then the Lord is not with you. But when you stay on that line, he is with you. And guess what? You standing on the line might be their salvation. If you back off that line, you are weakening the chance. You are making the spring muddy. Now we we have to move to the next chapter. To be honest, I don't want to. In chapter 17, we have oaks of righteousness. That's not what chapter 18 is about. Praise God, we will finish in chapter 19 on oaks of righteousness. We wanted to end on a high note. But I want you to think deeply about what was just said and think about what you believe is ministry to backslidden relatives. If they're okay with you while they're not okay with God, something's wrong with you. It's that simple. If you get along just fine, it's because you are not standing for God. It's really that simple. If God has a problem with them, then they ought to have a problem with you. Watch this break down in chapter 18. Watch what happens 
And I'll give you a clue. It starts with a wedding. Here's 18 in verse 1. Now Jehoshaphat had great wealth and honor and allied himself with Ahab by marriage. What? What, what is he doing? Let me show you his genealogical table here. Towards the bottom one-third of the screen, you see that Jehoshaphat has a son, Jehoram. Well, Jehoram is who is marrying a son, or rather a daughter of Ahab, Athaliah. This is monumentally bad. Now, we just saw a wedding between two righteous lines, and I'm very thankful for that. But the picture is bigger than just who got married. The picture is always about how we relate to the outside world and how they relate to us. In the coming weeks, you're going to see how horrific this move was. This woman is going to try to exterminate the entire line of David. And she just married into the family and nobody has a problem with it. If you want to read more on that subject, do 2 Kings 11. Remember in chapter 17 how it started? I'll give you a hint. It was the very first verse. Jehoshaphat began in an oak of righteousness state strengthening himself against Israel and the idolatry of Israel. But now that he seems to be doing so well, he's not so much strengthening himself against, he's trying to find a way to be at peace. What is your Christian compassion getting you? Are you sure it's Christian compassion? It's interesting to note that the way that he tries to find peace with people that he should be at war with and once was, was by sending his son as a part of it. You might really think about the places that you send your children to, that you wouldn't be comfortable staying there for a dinner because of the climate. Oh, Oh, but it's the grandparents. grandparents, It's it's, it's just grandparents. Yeah, I mean, that's all that it is. But you know, I just need a break from the kids, and so they can go stay anywhere. Ah, Molech, huh? Just sacrifice them. Look, Jehoshaphat put troops in Ephraim. If you didn't know, that's in the northern kingdom. To guard against their incursions. To limit their idolatrous influence. And now he's giving his own son in marriage to the same kingdom. The lines that were once clear are now awful blurry. Church, we need clear lines. Reeds can't draw clear lines because they're swaying. (laughs) You've got to be an oak to draw a clear line. When you don't see things clearly and you want to know why everybody else is so serious about it, go look in the mirror. The problem's with you. Love for Christ ought to be greater than your love for anyone or anything else, and only Christ could cause you to want fellowship with someone, and it's because they want fellowship with Him. If they don't want fellowship with Him, then why do you want fellowship with them? Hey, what's verse 2? Some years later, he went down to visit Ahab in Samaria. Read that one more time for me, Linton. Some years later, he went down. Wow. Down, down, down. Okay, keep reading the verse. Ahab slaughtered many sheep and cattle for him, and the people with him, and urged him to attack Ramoth Gilead. Oh, come on, man. We were once preparing for battle and keeping a border that our country cannot figure out how to build between him and Samaria. Then we have a marriage. Now he's going down to visit Ahab in Samaria. 
Now, saints, is Samaria geographically south of Jerusalem? No. No. No, it is not. And yet, Ezra writes that he went down to Samaria. The slow descent into the Sea of Reeds. (laughs) This is what always happens when you leave the moral high ground to descend into a peaceful effort. You leave God's throne room. You leave the temple. You leave the elevation of the word. And you end up being swayed like a reed in the wind in an ever-increasing fashion. But it's my sister. But it's, it's my uncle. What difference does that make in God's economy? Are we the only ones that have to separate from those scenarios? Oh, you do what you want to do. We're going to draw to ourselves oaks of righteousness. You know, I want to see my sister and my brother saved. That's why I'm spending this time here. You'll do it by acting like a reed, I'm sure. And of course, Jehoshaphat didn't bring Ahab to repentance. Ahab is now urging Jehoshaphat to actions. You see how this is working out? He's not calling Ahab to a righteous standard. He's going to Ahab and now he's beginning to consider things that Ahab is saying. I promise you, the same thing happens to you when you choose to act like a reed instead of standing like an oak. Ahab urged Jehoshaphat into a compromise in the name of peaceful relations and a greater victory for all Israel. Hey, it's going to be beneficial for all of us. Oh, yeah. Hey, let's see it's how like this... like a timeshare. Is... Yeah, timeshare. Or, hey, let's just... I have a vacation. There's an extra room. Just come with us. Hey, we'll throw you a big feast. Verse 3, Brother Linton. Ahab, king of Israel, asked Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go with me against your mouth, Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied, I am as you are, and my people as your people. We will join you in the war. Man, this is sad. Ahab, the most wicked king in Israel, so wicked that all other kings will be named after doing what he did, he bought the allegiance of this oak with a feast. Just a feast. I'm sure it was a family event. Yeah, come to the family dinner. Like, hey, you know... Let's meet halfway. I'll drive this way. You come meet me in somewhere. You know, we could stop at Ruth Chris or something. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He bought his allegiance. Don't let your allegiance be bought. Not with anything. Your allegiance can't be bought. You were bought. That's right. Your allegiance was bought by Jesus Christ. It wasn't about the feast. He just wanted peace. (laughs) Jehoshaphat had a desire for peace, but Ahab manipulated that. This is done every day with the birthday cards that you get, social (laughs) events, family desires. These things start to compete with the exaltation and love of God's ways as the foremost thing in your heart. She put a hundred in it. I mean, she's got to be a good person. Mm. Okay. Mm. Look, remember what Abraham said to the king of Sodom. I have sworn that I would not receive anything from you so that you can say I made Abram rich. Abraham was an oak. He wouldn't be bought. Look, should the southern kingdom, should the southern kingdom's people be as Ahab's people? No. That's what Jehoshaphat said. Should they be as Ahab's people? Not at all. Shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't Jehoshaphat be standing on the high ground in Jerusalem and saying, hey, you come to me. You want to meet in the middle? Let's meet in Jerusalem right here, the place where you broke away and the place that you need to repent and become like us. This kind of compromise changes oaks into reeds and threatens the hope of the lost. This happens with family members. This happens with people that have left this church. This happens with 
those Christians that we all think that we're going to do some good for, and yet we don't see that they do not love the Lord. They want to throw a feast and bargain you for peace. After all, we're all Christians. I mean, she may not be where she should be with the Lord, but, but we're all Christians. Really, does she suffer for the gospel like you? Does she separate herself from the world like you? When she leaves, is she able to say, well, we're really just the same, or does she leave with a glaring sense that you are worlds apart, even with the same name? Mm. And will she want to come back if you do that? Mm. Well, see, this is how an oak is turned into a reed, is you become like them through your tacit approval. They do not become like you. So, but I'm just trying to give them a chance. It's your job to be rooted in the Lord and lift him as high as possible. And if they want to be around that while you're authentically what you are, then it's because they want to become that. If when they're around, you avoid certain subjects and you just try to keep it nice and keep wow. peace, how are you not drowning in a sea of reeds? I'm looking forward to the next chapter. <laughs> What's verse 4? But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, First, seek the counsel of the Lord. Man, doesn't that feel good? This is the telltale sign, right? And I promised not to call names tonight, so I'm not going to. Seeking the Lord after the commitment is made. Oh, oh no, I said we're going to seek the Lord. I also said we're going to seek the Lord. Yes, but you've already committed. My goodness. Oh, I'm letting that silence sit for a minute because the Lord told me he would do the heavy lifting with you tonight. He said, first, seek the Lord. But he had already pledged himself to a man that has no interest in the will of God of any kind. And he knew that before he went, just like you know, before you meet with some of the people that you meet with. You make yourself feel better, though, by saying, but I said, seek the Lord. The ironic thing is that the Lord has already decided to put Ahab to death. That die's already been cast. God's already said it. God himself wants to kill Ahab. And Jehoshaphat wants to be married. It's cute. They even dress like each other. It is only Jehoshaphat that is desirous of peace. And he compromises himself to obtain it. Christian, there's a message in this for you. Your little paradigms that you, well, we always reach out to everyone. No, you're always open to those who are trying to reach the Lord. He compromised himself because he didn't know what God wanted in the scenario. And consequently, he hastens Ahab's fall. He causes it to happen faster than if he had simply stood where he stood and gave Ahab a place to look at that was different. Let's begin in verse 5 and go through 6. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, 400 men, and asked them, Shall we go to war against the Malchiliah, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for God will give it to the hands of the king, to the king's hand. But Joshua asked, Is there not a prophet of the Lord Saints, you can see the little bit of sanity that he has left in his mind eking out in an ever-increasingly dark scenario. 
He's surrounded by lying prophets. And he's recognizing it. He's sitting with them and he can recognize that what they're saying is lies coming out of their mouth. And that Ahab is eating it up. The man that he just made this commitment to. Now it's another note that we're going to build on a little while later, but I think it's worth addressing in this moment. This guy dies because the Lord had determined it. Our point-blank response that is a default, that when someone is sick, that someone is dead, that something has happened, that, oh, that's bad, or I'm so sorry. Yeah, unless God wanted to put the man to death. He's sitting with a man that God has condemned to death. And the lying spirit that is in the mouth of his prophets, or pastors, if you will, is telling him exactly what his itching ears want to hear. He's sitting in a compromised Samaritan church and knows it in this moment. Man, it is a seriously scary thing to go down the hill of compromise. You may not be able to turn back. When Jehoshaphat had recognized that he was surrounded by lying prophets, that he should have been separated from, but he was swaying like a reed in the wind, then, then he begins politely to do what he knows is right. Is there not a prophet of the Lord among you? It only gets worse from here. The compromise that he has started, like a rock rolling downhill all the way to the depths of hell, it's dragging him along the way despite the fact he's realizing things are wrong and he's trying to cling to remedying the situation. But you notice it's always peaceful, it's always polite. So we keep reading, you'll see what happens in this scenario. Get verse 7 for us, Linton. The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. The king should not say that, Jehoshaphat replied. Now when you read that, I, I don't know. When I read that, I'm trying to picture how Jehoshaphat said that. You know, how I think he should have said that is, Hey, you should not say that about the man of the Lord. I doubt it. But I bet it was something like, You shouldn't say that. <laughs> Stop it. Can you hear how uneasy Jehoshaphat is getting? He's a little uncomfortable, and he should be, because Ahab is being pretty wicked. There is a man that they could inquire of the Lord. He's not there because they didn't think of bringing him. And Ahab said plainly, I hate him because he never prophesies anything good, but always bad. You know, I think many people in this church say the same thing, but it's not really masked. It's not really said so plainly as this. It's a little bit masked. You know, I'm sure Jehoshaphat thought that Ahab was maybe, I mean, he could have looked like an oak, but what he's starting to see here is that he's more like an oak veneer and that inside there's a reed. Many people in this church say the same thing that Ahab says, but you know, they usually mask it with, yeah, I don't really like to talk to Eric. I kind of rather go to Matt, you know? Or next week, I don't want to talk to Matt. Yeah, the next week. You know, I'd really rather go to Wade because, I don't know, me and Matt don't connect as much. Or, you know, I don't like to go to Judah as much. I, I, I want to go talk to whoever. We tend to hate the people that point out things in our lives. And Jehoshaphat is starting to see this. And yet, 
He stays. He stays there even though he's seeing this. He participates. He gives tacit approval by his presence even if he pacifies himself with an impotent rebuke. I said something, Justin. I said something. I mean, he saw that I was displeased on the inside. (laughs) Well, you know, I wonder if Jehoshaphat went back to Jerusalem and told the story in a different way. I stood up and rebuked him. I told him that that was not right. I gave him five scriptures when in fact all he said is, probably shouldn't say that. What's the major problem? He's there. He shouldn't be there at all. What's the second major problem? He's in a conversation. It doesn't matter what he says. He shouldn't be talking to him. The Lord wants to kill him. But he made himself feel better by going, you know, I I said it wasn't right. Yes, and then you went with him anyway. Don't you think that's more condemning? To have the words come out of your own mouth that it's not right and then maintain fellowship? I would say that's more condemning. What fellowship does light have with darkness? Is that written to us or not? Does it matter if they say that they're in the light but are actually walking in darkness? Does it matter if you're related to them? Proverbs 25.6 says something that's important. And I look, we're going to get out of this chapter. (laughs) I want you to relate this to dealing with lost family members, with dealing with backslidden believers. I want you to relate this to those that you feel like you're losing connection with and it's because they've lost connection with the Lord. I I want you to relate this to that scenario. Proverbs 25, 26. Like a muddied spring or a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked. See, an oak of righteousness can't be swayed into agreeing with sinful positions, even because of familial connections. A reed does it continually. I mean, it's just a matter of peaceful coexistence. Can't we all get along? Do they get along with God? No. How about Romans 132? Although they know God's righteous decree, that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Do you approve of people that God disapproves of their practices? But we're related. Okay. I thought when you died... You lost all of those relationships and you took on the blood of Christ and now you're related to him and anybody that wants to be related to you has to come into him to be related to you. But you'd like it both ways. Oaks never approve of things that God hates, even if they do it tacitly by just not saying much. Reeds sway. They just don't want to hurt people's feelings. Or appear harsh. A reed's highest goal in life might be to be viewed as a sweet person. Jesus didn't have that luxury. Reeds find themselves partnering with people that God is going to destroy. And you become guilty because you didn't stand with God. You stood with your relationship. Be warned, church. Be seriously warned. God doesn't value your friendships. God doesn't value your familial connections. He certainly doesn't value your sentiments in the same way that you do. What God values is the man or woman who exalts him and his ways above everything else and lets the chips fall where they may. That's what God values. What do you think it means to love not your life so much as to shrink from death? Did you think we were just talking about mortal concerns? 
Or do you have to take up your cross every day and die to your sentiments and everything else and let Christ be exalted in your death? Hey, what's verse 8? Real quick before we do that. Uh-oh. We want to take just a minute. We're going to center in on a concept together. You with me? With yeah. you. Because Christ's love compels us. Compels. We are moving towards action that is ready to die, ready to face anything, because love compels you. Husbands, I want you to think about your spouse for a moment. Is it some great cross that you have to carry if you die defending your wife? No. No. Why? Because love compels you to do so. If somebody said something vulgar to your wife and said she's a dirty whore, at best, you might get a rebuke. At worst, you might have your teeth knocked out. Why? Because love compels you towards the one that you are protecting, that you stand for. How is it that we can be married to Christ and yet sit in a room and hear him spoken of in a way that is vulgar? Or hear one of his men, one of his brothers, spoken of in a way that is vulgar? See, the issue is that we really don't love him enough. But he is able to help us to learn to love him. What we want to center in on in the midst of dealing with family at dinners, compromises, and X and Y, Z in so many different areas. The reason that we must gain an understanding is so that we can move from a fear of punishment and what is expected to a love that is like a zealous jealousy inside of a husband for his wife. That I will do whatever it takes to stand and I'm going to see victory. You with us? You're going to be zealous? Yes. Yes. How many of you have seen a shirt that says cult leader? Man, is that a cool shirt? (laughs) So we pick up in verse 8. Do you know what it says on the back? The result of loving Jesus more than most. Yes. Why are some called cult leaders and others not? You figure it out. Okay. All of you should desire that anybody that is not in love with the Lord thinks that you are so radically off base. You are so crazy out of your mind. Your allegiance to Jesus and the people that that Jesus loves and love him is so beyond the pale that they hate you and slander you. If your goal is to get along with them, then maybe you just don't love Jesus that much. That's the Sea of Reeds, and we're coming out of the Sea of Reeds. Hey, what's verse 8? So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imla, at once. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing board by the entrance of the gate of Samaria, with all the prophets prophesying before them. Am, am I the only one who finds it offensive they're both sitting together dressed alike on thrones? I, I mean... Of course, I find a lot of things offensive the way we get along with. Yeah, it's okay. Let's keep going. <laughs> now, Zedekiah, son of Kenaah, had made iron horns and declared, This is what the Lord says With these, you will go into Arameans until they are destroyed. All the other prophets were prophesying the same thing Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said, said to him, Look, as one man, the other prophets are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. Wicked kings like Ahab always feel a little less wicked when you are related to them 
or have a friendship with them. Wicked family members, wicked kings will use their relationship with you. They'll use their phone time with you. They'll use their email chats and everything like that to feel a little bit less wicked. You know, if they can talk with you and you not tell them the truth, well, then it gives them approval. Absolutely. I have to go back to what Ravenhill said. He said, you know, we all think if we just be just like Jesus, the world is going to gonna come to Jesus and they're going to see the Lord. No, if we be just like Jesus, they're going to do to us what they did to Jesus. Yeah. And you know, Jesus was motivated by one thing. He loved his Father enough to do his will. Amen. We have to stop letting wicked people feel like they are less wicked because of our friendship. Actually, if we're really true friends, we will give them what's best for them and tell them, hey, I love you, and because I love you, I have to tell you the truth about the way you're acting and what I see in your life. These people tend to have the majority on their side. You see at least 400 prophets here, right? And yet there's only one that they didn't acquire. There's one right prophet of the Lord, a stack against 400. These people have the majority on their side. They feel justified because they have so many people telling them what their itching ears want to hear. Jehoshaphat is now in a sea of reeds. Things are mucky and unclear. He is now in go along and get along mode. He's gone a little bit too far. He's committed himself. He's given tacit approval long enough that it's irreversible for Jehoshaphat. And he's going to actually have to go into battle and almost die to figure it out. Have any of you been there? I know I have. I know I've given way to the wicked in my life, and things have gotten murky. You know where that stopped? When I realized where the standard was and where I left it, and I got right back to the standard, and then shalom started to happen. Everything falled in line, and I began to be like an oak again. And you know what? It actually showed the truth of God's word. Just tired of being the lone voice? Man, it's tiresome being the lone lone voice. It's tiresome being the only one who's carrying the truth while everyone else is prophesying false things. Be careful your compassion doesn't get you killed outside of the will of God. Mm. Paul said it plainly. Bad company corrupts good character. You allow yourself to compromise long enough and your character will be slanted. Now let's pick up in verse 13 and go down to 14. But Micaiah said, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what my God says. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Attack and be victorious, he answered, for they will be given into your hand. <laughs> of course, this is hilarious sarcasm. But remember, Micaiah is an oak, and he's being facetious. He also doesn't mind if they go to war and die, because it's what the Lord determined would happen to Ahab. He had a vision already that he is going to relate to them in a few minutes. But he's already seen it. He saw it on the way there. He already knows what is supposed to happen. He also knows that Ahab is a liar and he's speaking his native language. (laughs) Verse 15. The king said to him, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So catch this. Ahab, the king, is a liar. And Micaiah recognizes his native tongue. Ahab doesn't really want the truth here. 
He's putting on a show for Jehoshaphat. I I recognize it because I see my relatives do it all of the time. They run to a Bible bookstore to get a gift for a Christian. Uh, They've never, they have to Google where the Bible bookstore is and they wouldn't recognize a a book in it, but they just want to appear like we're on the same page. (laughs) He's putting on a show and Jehoshaphat is falling for it. And so do most of you. What's verse 16? Then Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, These people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. You know, there's a key phrase here we don't have time to teach on. These people have no master. Stop telling me about, oh, this person loves the Lord because they made a commitment when they're eight. And tell me, is the Lord the master of their lives? Come on. And if the Lord is not the master of their lives, then what fellowship do you have with them except to make him master? And is that really the aim of all of your activities with him? Or are you more like Jehoshaphat hanging out with Ahab? Ooh. Let's get your next verse, 17. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you that he never prophesied anything good about him, but only bad? Remember, the prophet only expresses God's thoughts about Ahab. There, Isaiah 5.20 on the screen. It's all right, we can quote it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The prior verses that we were just commenting on, sending a gift from the Christian bookstore. This man has so twisted God's goodness that he is defining God's will as evil or bad. This shows you the extent to which Ahab has interacted with the Lord and has twisted God's words to fit his own premise of what is loving, what is righteous. And it's beginning to have an effect upon Jehoshaphat's ability to rightly define what is right, what is good, and what is wholesome. If you don't believe me, look at the state of our nation today and what we consider a good and wholesome marriage. They're interacting with something, defining it by their own set of standards. This should have been an incredible warning to Jehoshaphat. The moment that he realized that when God prophesied something that was holy, that was true, that was good, and the man that he's sitting with is speaking bad about it. Listen, love compels a kind of action that is not a requirement, but is a deep, churning, inward desire that you almost can't hold it back. Back to the idea of how would you respond if it was your family, if it was the wife that God had given you? Would somebody have to tell you to stand up and say something? Absolutely not. No, they wouldn't. We need a love for the living God that is like an oak of righteousness that will not bend, that will not break, that will not change for those that are around us. And I assure you, the exchanging good for bad and bad for good happens in every single conversation you have with the compromised. If you do that long enough, and it will exchange bad for good and good for bad in your own mind where you can't tell what is right any longer. This is something that we have the ability to be warned by. Jehoshaphat is getting it wrong here, but he will not forever. Let's go to verse 18. I can't continue. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the hosts of heaven standing on his right and left. And the Lord said, Who will incise Ahab, king of Israel, into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? 
Man, I love this. This is like Christopher Nolan's style working here. Ahab had enticed Jehoshaphat into an alliance that almost kills him. Ahab will also entice Jehoshaphat to go into battle dressed conspicuously, which almost kills Jehoshaphat. But you know what's about to happen? Ahab is enticing, but while he's enticing, God is going to do to Ahab exactly what Ahab has been doing to others. Ahab is enticing righteous oaks off of their position, and God is going to entice him into a final trap. This is just like Proverbs 26, 27. If a man digs a pit, he will fall into it. If a man rolls a stone, it will roll back on him. They think they're getting away with it by digging a pit. They think, you know, like in Revelation style, man, mountains, you know, hide me from the face of the Lord. And that's exactly what the Lord's using to crush them. He is doing this own work himself, and he is digging his own pit that he is going to follow, fall into. Now, Linton, pick up in verse 20 and read to 22. One suggested this, and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord, and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked. I will go and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Look, Jehoshaphat is literally standing next to a man that God has decreed to die. The heavenly council is meeting and talking about the ways to bring it about. Yeah. That's who Jehoshaphat has befriended. That's who Jehoshaphat has given his son to and taken their daughter. That's who Jehoshaphat left his kingdom to go be a part of that kingdom for. Jehoshaphat is also hearing these words. And shockingly, he goes to battle anyway. That's what it's like to be in a sea of reeds. Deception creeps up on you and now you've gone this far and you just... You, you don't even see it as wrong anymore. I mean, after all, you gave your word. Jehoshaphat is swaying like a reed in the wind. And he doesn't see it. You have the perspective of being able to look at his life from the outside. Can you look at yours that way? The word will help you do it. It shouldn't take somebody else pointing it out. You ought to be examining yourself right now. You ought to be going through your relationships, through your recent activities. The Holy Ghost will help you do that because he wants you to be an oak of righteousness. He's not showing you any of these things to hurt you. He's actually showing them to build you and help you so that you're not hurt by your own reed-like behavior. I'd like to get verse 23 and 24. I, 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 there's a comment I have to make about it. Then Zedekiah, son of Kainah, went up and slapped Micaiah in the face. Which way did the spirit from, from the Lord go when he went from me to speak to you, he asked. McCann replied, you will find out on the day you go and hide in the inner room. I've met a lot of face slappers. They come from the church of the iron horns. They do what they want. They think that God is with them when they do what they want. We've been fighting the desire to tell you this all evening, and I'm only going to do it once. Reeds always show contempt for oaks of righteousness. They always do. Their conviction is converted into contempt rather than humbling themselves in repentance. They hate those that do not cave 
to those base, sinful, childish ways. And rather than repent, they take all the conviction they feel and turn it into contempt for you. But we're confident of better things in your case. And uh, we're going to get out of this chapter as fast as possible. <laughs> Verse 25. The king of Israel then ordered, Take Micaiah and send him back to Ammon, the ruler of the city, and to Joash, the king's son. And say, This is what the king says. Put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah declared, If you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Then he added, Mark my words, all you people. Saints, it is no surprise that the reed, the lying prophet, smacked Micaiah. It is no surprise that the king of Israel then has him imprisoned. Sinners sin and dogs bark. You know what is surprising? Is that the mighty king of Israel who has the empowerment of the armies of heaven is watching this and doesn't do anything about it. The once oak of righteousness that is Jehoshaphat has been backed off of his allegiance to the Lord. And he's watching those that love the Lord be mistreated, be imprisoned, and he's going to do nothing about it at all. That might be the most convicting thing that we could contemplate this evening, is the areas that despite what we have been armed with, we can witness such things. I know in my own life the number of times I've saw what was good spoken of as evil, and I shrunk back. There are a few things that are quite as haunting as that, and I know, as haunting as it may feel to me now, the judgment seat of Christ, that will not be a discussion I want to talk about. It would be easier to talk about sins that I openly committed than the times that I shrunk back and watched the righteous be persecuted and did not participate. Folks, of righteousness cannot be backed off. Our allegiance cannot be bought. Our love for Christ must compel us oh, to an action. Yeah. It must compel us to an action that is not one that is calculated, that is not one that is counting the cost, but is I want Christ, Amen. and I love Him, and I will do all for Him. Amen. We have but a few more verses to get out of this chapter. Y'all want to leave the Sea of Reeds? Yeah. Man, I want to leave it, but we're not yes. done yet. Read sway to avoid uncomfortable, unpleasant difficulties, but oaks because they love Righteousness would rather die than betray their fellow brothers. Pick up in verse 28, and we'll see how this continues to roll down the hill. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. How does Jehoshaphat take that? Like, how does he just sit there and go, Sounds like oh, a great yeah. plan. Yeah, I will clearly have the markers of the guy they're trying to kill, and I'll let you go disguised. You know, the reason why Jehoshaphat can, because he is like a frog in the kettle. He didn't notice the temperature rising. If it would have suddenly come upon him like a flash in a pan, he might have jumped out. But oftentimes, these temptations, they come very slowly. Yes, and that's, we don't recognize them because it comes very subtle. Right. A text message. Yeah. It's it's what we would refer to Charlie as making your friend the clay pigeon. Yeah. 
Look, Joseph had to slowly compromise himself, and his judgment is no longer rational. He is even letting those destined by God to die tell him how to dress. Think deeply on that. <laughs> Would you accept this plan? No. Well, not right now. But give enough time, give enough heat, give enough compromise, and we start to not think rationally. Ahab is putting a target on Jehoshaphat's back, and Jehoshaphat is letting it happen. Jehoshaphat has heard the prophecies. He knows better, but he has become dull in doing wrong. Man, we've got to get that edge back tonight. We've got to get that Holy Spirit conviction inside of us, like oaks of righteousness. Because when we do, we won't become dull. We'll be sharp as the whip Jesus used to drive out those in the temple, and we will actually be a sharp tool in His hand. Now let's pick up verse 30 and go to 32. Now the king of Aram had ordered his chariot commanders, do not fight with anyone, small or great, except the king of Israel. When the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they thought, this is the king of Israel. So they turned to attack him. But Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord helped him. Come on, he did what? He cried out. God drew them away from him. For when the chariot commanders saw that he was not the king of Israel, they stopped pursuing him. The mercy of God in Jehoshaphat's life would literally be without parallel if it were not for you and me. God doesn't want to snuff out smoldering reeds. No. He wants to turn them into oaks of righteousness. Amen. Jehoshaphat is going to live and fight another day. And so are you. Hopefully, Jehoshaphat will not make the mistake of seeing God's mercy as approval for his actions. And hopefully we don't make those same mistakes. Ahab, on the other hand, he's going to die. Amen. And the world's going to be a better place because of it. And that's how God felt about it, no matter how you feel about it. Let's pick back up in 33. But someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. The king told the chariot driver, Wheel around and get me out of the fight. I've been wounded. All day long the battle raged, and the king of Israel propped himself up in his chariot facing the Arameans until evening. Then at sunset, he died. All right, somebody say praise God. Praise God. You did it. We made it all the way to verse 34. The stone, the pit, the trap that was set, it has fallen back on Ahab's head. And because Jehoshaphat learned to be compelled by love and cry out to his father, Help! He is alive! It's always a good day when the sinful cease to exist and those that depend upon their God are delivered. Now this event was not random. I know it was a random arrow, but it's exactly what God had determined. If necessary, he is able to change the flight path of a random arrow to ensure that his will is done. All that we need to do is trust him yeah. in the meantime. Amen. We are ready to turn to oaks of righteousness. Yes. Yes. Are you ready to turn yes. to oaks of righteousness? Yes. Yes. Then let's let Christ's love compel us to chapter 19, verse 1, Linton. When Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, returned safely to his palace in Jerusalem, Jehu the seer, son of Hananiah, went out to meet him and said to the king, Should you help the wicked? And love those who hate the Lord? God, that's a great question. I, I, I want to make sure I heard it right. Would you read it again? 
Because we're leaving the, I mean, we're crossing right through the Sea of Reeds. We're coming out on the other side, a brand new people, baptized, the old man left last week. And, and now, now, we know the truth. It's coming out of the mouth of a prophet. Brother Linton, quote the prophet. Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Hmm. Because of this, the wrath of the Lord, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. There is, however, some good in you. For you have rid the land of the astropoles and have set your heart on seeking God. Man, I love this passage. There is wrath on you, but there's still some good in you. Amen. Amen. See, Jehoshaphat was an oak. And him crying out to the Lord showed that he was an oak. But he still had to face some, some consequences. Wow. And that is what was pruning him and making him a better oak. But look, the lesson is, since you are an oak of righteousness, Amen. you must, everybody say must. Must. You must determine not to help the wicked or love those who hate the Lord. Wow. This is necessary because of the love of the Lord that is compelling you. Wow. It also, uh, it ought to be a reminder that that arrow hole in your back, uh, that ought to be a pretty good reminder. Yeah. And if you can't find it yet, you will. I mean, you, it, it's, it's there. Just because the conversations haven't made their way back around to you yet, just because you haven't seen a video copy of it yet, it will happen. Yeah. I promise. Nothing good ever comes out of helping wicked people that do not love the Lord, especially yeah. those that need to feel themselves under the judgment of God. It's so good to be out of the Sea of Reeds. It is. <laughs> but men who can't make this adjustment, adjustment will eventually find themselves under the wrath of the Lord. But we are those that love the Lord, right? Yeah! Yeah! We love a righteous and holy God. We love a God that doesn't tolerate wickedness, and therefore we don't because we love him. Remember Asa last week? Oh, yeah. Jehoshaphat's father? He got a rebuke like this and never made the adjustment. God does not want to snuff out a smoldering wick, though. He didn't destroy this line. Thankfully, Jehoshaphat will make the adjustment. We're going to see that here. We trust adjustments are being made all over this room right now. Amen. Let us reckon with our read-like actions so that we love what God loves and hate what God's hate. You want some scriptures on that? Read the scriptures that we have been sharing for the last two or three years over and over. Psalm 5, Psalm 45, Psalm 58. And you might as well throw the entire four gospels in there with it. It's very clear. And yet it becomes unclear whenever our determinations are mixed. But we're getting them clear right now. Amen? Amen. Let's pick up in verse 4. Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem. And he went out again among the people of from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and turned them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. I so love the turn that has happened. Earlier, they were ministering in Judah and they had a stronghold in Ephraim, but they weren't ministering there. Now, Jehoshaphat is also ministering in Ephraim, behind enemy lines. Look at how a sin repented from is saving the lives of others. Jehoshaphat is returning to his oak status, and he's even evangelizing the northern kingdom. It's crazy how a near-death experience helped him. We'd like for you to not require one of those to obtain that revelation. Amen. What's verse 5? He appointed judges in the land, in 
each of the fortified cities of Judah. He told them, Consider carefully what you do, because you are not judging for man, but for the Lord, Ooh, who yeah. is with you whenever you are, whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. Man, this saying has proven true over and over again. The man with the experience is not at the mercy of the man who merely has an argument. Josephat knows this firsthand. Some translations at the end of verse 7 say, no iniquity or no respecter of persons. Josephat learned that lesson, that you can be kingly, that you can be called of God, that you can be anointed, and God is not a respecter of persons. His hardline standard must be stood upon as an oak of righteousness. Standing as an oak of righteousness means judging as the Lord does. Your verdict being God's verdict. Your fear of the Lord should guide you in everything that you do. Jehoshaphat was a king, and it was his job to make right judgments for his people. Now that he's learned that lesson, he's helping other people succeed in making right judgments. Listen, if a pastor, an elder, or a brother is helping you do that, saints, be thankful. You have no idea how far that role will take you. Jehoshaphat survived and learned to fear the Lord, and now he's imparting that to other people. God is not partial to your friendships, relatives, or social concerns. He is righteous no matter which way the wind is blowing. We are going to be men who are in his image, just like Genesis spoke about our creation. Amen. So let's recover three things that we just grabbed here. It said no injustice or partiality, or bribery. Now, you probably think none of those things are in your life. Sometimes reading another translation is so helpful. No iniquity. You can't be a part of any iniquity. No respect of persons. No matter whether they're related to you or not. Here's the last one. No taking of gifts. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, I think I'll just let that stand. Let's look at Hebrews 10. Together. Is that all right? Good, because it's what we're going to do. We're oaks of righteousness. The sea of reeds are behind us. And now we're reminding ourselves how you take an oak-like stand. Who wants Hebrews 10? Wow, that's so many to choose from. I don't know what to do. I'll pick the biggest man closest to me. Hebrews 10, 26 through 37. That's always wise to give preference to the biggest one that's closest to you. That's going to be me. You need it for... <laughs> you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming... Hebrews 10, 26? Hebrews 10... I think it starts with, if we deliberately... If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Reads. Keep going. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as, a, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the spirit of grace? For, for we know him 
who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Mm. Now, Jehoshaphat realized ju the judgment of the Lord. He saw the judgment of the Lord on Ahab, and he saw that he was almost judged. You know what that caused him to do? It caused him to cry out and get it right. Yeah. He didn't want to be that close to the raging fire. He did not want to be that close to a God that it's fearful to fall into his hands. That caused Jehoshaphat to get right because he saw the judgment firsthand. Amen. Keep going to verse 32. Remember those earlier days. Amen. After you had received the light. Come on, LCM. Remember those earlier days. Yeah. When you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. Usually by your relatives. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. Also by their relatives. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better lasting possessions. Do not throw away your confidence. Come on, don't throw it away. They will be richly rewarded. You, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. We are going to receive what has been promised. Yes, because we are going to stand. Yes. Because God has said, you are oaks of righteousness. Yes. Look, one chapter your life does not define. There's a chapter before, and there's the chapter we're entering into now. Amen. Let's pick up in verse 8. In Jerusalem also, Joshua appointed some of the Levites, priests and heads of Israelite families to administer the law of the Lord and to and settle disputes. And they lived in Jerusalem. He gave them these orders. You must serve faithfully and wholeheartedly in the fear of the Lord. Mm. In every case. In how many cases? Every case. That comes before you from your fellow countrymen who live. Who I'm live sorry. In, in every case from your who? Fellow oh. oh, God, I thought I misheard that. <laughs> who live in the cities, whether bloodshed or other concerns of the law, commands, decrees, or ordinances, you are to warn them not to sin against the Lord. You are to what? Warn them. <laughs> Otherwise, his wrath will come on you. If you people. don't warn them, so then what happens? Wow. His wrath will come on you. And who else? And your brother. Oh, my God. Wow. Do this. Do what? Do this. this. Son of Ishmael, the leader of the tribe of Judah, will be over you in any matter concerning the king. And the Levites will serve as officials before you. Act with courage. Oh my God! Act with, with courage. courage! And may the Lord be with those who do well. Those who do well. Amen. Not profess well. We have something to show because that was a lot to throw at you. Like, those last verses are uh, text rich. So we did what we do for Americans. We put it on a slide. He appoints judges throughout the kingdom. He appoints tribal heads throughout the kingdom. He has Levites throughout the kingdom. Jehoshaphat is the king of the kingdom, but he puts chief priests with priests throughout the kingdom. All of them have one central focus now. 
It's not what their heart desires. It's not what their family relations are. In every case, every time, it's what the book of the law says. In fact, there's a central point to all of it. You must serve faithfully and wholeheartedly in the fear of the Lord in every case that comes before you. By the way, Jehoshaphat, one. Judges, two. Tribal heads, three. Levites, four. Chief priest, five. It's almost like he found the government of God again. Yeah. You end up in the sea of reeds when you do not imitate the lives of your leaders. That's true at every level of leadership. It's true at every place in the kingdom. He started this way, and he finishes this way tonight. Because that's how you get out of the Sea of Reeds. In every case, at all times, the love of the Lord is exalting his word in your heart. There are never two different preferences. The Lord demands your preferences be crucified, and you lift up his preferences. So saints, we're at the end of our time span this evening. I want to remind you that Isaiah 61 says they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities. They have been devastated for generations, but aliens will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work in your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priest of the Lord. Above all else, what we want for you this evening is to know how to stand as an oak. That rather than just operating in fear of punishment, that Christ's love might compel you to right actions. That you would have a relationship with him that is like you and your wife. You want to do what is right. You love the living God. And that we would move beyond the sinful trappings that have all too often revisited us. We're going to put our feet on them now. We're done with them. We're going to succeed. We're going to conquer them here and now. Convictions are being solidified that are oaks of righteousness in this house. You guys go ahead and stand. No doubt we shared some things that are cutting to the heart tonight. No doubt that there are people in this room that are struggling with reed-like symptoms. I'm compelled by love. These men up here are compelled by love for the Lord and love for you. To illustrate to you that Jehoshaphat did not stay there. Jehoshaphat did not stay in reed-like status because he began as an oak. When I look in this room, I see a lot of oaks of righteousness. Amen. Amen. I see a lot of oaks, but I see oaks going through storms. See storms in your lives, and it's causing a little bit of swaying. Job 14, verse 7 says, At least there is hope for a tree. There's no hope for a reed. But there is hope for a tree. If it is cut down... 
it will sprout again. And its new shoots will not fail. Its roots may grow old in the ground and its stump die in the soil. Yet at the scent of water, thank you, God, it will bud and put forth shoots like a plant. As we've been sharing tonight, we've been hitting on some very clear things. No doubt in your lives, you might see some areas that feel like they're dying. Your discernment might be dying. Your edge might be being made dull. But tonight, for a tree, at the scent of water, you can sprout again. At the scent of water, you can come right back to that position where your roots were growing deep. Right back at that high ground where you belong. You can come back to that position of confidence in whatever area the Lord is dealing with you, just at the scent of water. I want to say that tonight, the water is available. There is a river of God's presence that is flowing, and it can make you strong. It has made me strong in my life when I have been like a reed. It can so make you strong that you can stand up and bear fruit and have green leaves in every season. Do you want that? Yes. Let's grab hold of the upper springs. Hallelujah. Let's have the lower springs rise in to meet them. Father, we renew our commitment to you. Father, 